Number 7 Media Production. Welcome to the Biz Crush podcast series where I interview successful South African entrepreneurs and movers and shakers in order to extract practical advice on succeeding in business and life. I'm your host, Jacques Passant. And remember, if you prefer Afrikaans, check out Clipco's podcast series. Duncan Blackburn, retired owner of Carbochem Holdings, boasts extensive experience in process engineering and change management. He explains how Carbochem became a private holding company, holding assets purchased from Centrochem Limited. The buyout signaled the start of an era focusing on innovative product development, process improvement, and environmental best practice. However, Duncan suggests that due to the current political and economical climate, South Africa has become a rather negligible part of the global market and that the chemical industry faces challenging times ahead. To succeed, companies need to follow the example of one of Carbochem's former subsidiaries, SLC, who are developing new revolutionary products that enable them to still compete globally. Give us a snapshot of, of where you grew up, obviously, the journey that took you to Sasselberg, what happened in Sasselberg, and, and all the race and the family. So just give us a snapshot about, about yourself, please. Yeah, well, I was born and grew up in Germiston. Uh, attended primary school in Germiston, but attended high school in Boxburg, uh, mainly because um, at the time that I was due to go to high school, the principal of my primary school was promoted to pr- principal of the high school in Boxburg. And he just said to my parents, why don't you send Duncan to Boxburg High? So off I went to Boxburg High for no other reason than that. Uh, matriculated there in 68. Uh, were were the English-speaking folk in Boxburg in those days? Uh, or was it, is this a naive comment? <laughs> no, odd one or two, yeah. <laughs> so you, that's where no, you were. Yeah. You, you learned your Afrikaans there. Yeah, no, look, I, I, am, I am bilingual. Um, I had, even at primary school, we had Afrikaans neighbors in Germiston. So, yeah. And then, of course, if you went to the South African army in those days, it was basically 100% Afrikaans. So, yeah. No, I'm totally bilingual. Anyway, I finished the army. And then went to Wits. Bit of a change from being in the army to going to Wits. Uh, did a BSc Chem Eng from 1970 to 73. Why, why, why that degree? Was that have you always liked science? Well, I was I was I was always yeah, I liked science, mathematics, etc. And actually between going to the army. Between matric and going to the army, I went. My parents sent me for a whole lot of tests, and uh, I was I was I was thinking of doing civil engineering. And the tests came out that said, "No, don't do civil engineering. You're not artistic enough." And they gave my parents well. The report gave a couple of options, uh, one of which was chemeng. I didn't really know anything about it. So I spent actually the year that I was in the army, I spent some time doing research as to exactly what ChemEng is about and then decided to do it. So while I was in the army, in fact, I applied for the bursary uh, and was 
granted a bursary to go to WITS for four years. Yeah, so I did BSc Chemeng at WITS. And then having been, a, having been a, a bursary holder, I was obliged to go and work for Sassel a year for a year. So I was obliged to go for at least four years. But we got married and then we moved. So my wife and I moved to Sasselburg in the beginning of 74. And I worked for Sassel for eight years. So I was in, you know, I said to her, she's a real Joburg. She really loves Joburg more than anything else. So going to Sasselburg for her was really an act of love, I can tell you. <laughs> is, it, is it one of those, uh, she cried when she got there, cried when she left type, type story? <laughs> yeah, so I promised her it would be four years, but it ended up being 21 years. Oh, now, my so goodness. I, yeah, oh, have years. you been forgiven since? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Eh? She, still, she still says she's done her bit. Uh, so, yeah, we, I was with Cecil for eight, and then I... Then I resigned from Cecil, uh, mainly because I was earmarked to go to Secunda for the new, you know, the new plants that were being built in, in Secunda. And we really didn't fancy going there. So I started to job hunt. And I joined a joint venture company in Sasselberg called Sanfropol. We made plastics. And I then spent the next 14 odd years there. So so can we can we uh, stand still at 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 Sassel Sasselberg in the seventies? I mean, what what was? And again, for for the listeners, I doubt the listeners uh, won't know. Obviously, Sassel uh, uh, was created. Uh, I guess as an act of defiance, we'll just make our own oil from from uh, coal. Uh, with the sanctions, and then of course today it's our well, I guess our first and only Fortune 500 company. But what was Sassel like back in the day? Sasselberg, was it just this monster next to the river? Give us a snapshot of. of I'll be totally honest with you, Jock. I thoroughly loved it, and I loved the place as well. I mean, um, it was strangely speaking the. The actual Sasselberg of that time was totally different to what people thought it was. It was very cosmopolitan. Um, there were all sorts of people there from all over the world. You know, the chemical industry is a kind of a global family thing in a way. And, you know, there were lots of joint ventures in Sasselberg. The, the Nartref refinery, for example, was a joint venture with Total. Uh, ANCRs in Sasselberg, so they had people from the UK working there. So it was a really a cosmopolitan kind of place. It was fantastic. Sure. Um, it was, it, it's a very well laid out town. Was it purpose, pur- purpose built? Like I'm thinking Valcom with all the circles and stuff. So it was deliberate, there was a plan. Exactly. And they had these fantastic, what they called the Grunstroeke, you know, these green parts all through the all through the, the residential neighborhoods. So your kids could spend the whole day away from home and you knew they weren't on roads. They could go to their friends, ride their bikes through these so-called green areas, and it was fabulous. They had a fabulous time. Go to school on a bike through a green area. You didn't have to worry that your kids were on the roads. Yeah. 
So Cecil Berg, we thoroughly enjoyed. And to be quite honest, you know, it's only, it's only an hour away from Joburg. So even though my wife is a total Joburger, you know, an hour, an hour in the car and she could be back in Joburg. So it was actually quite fantastic. Um, all three of our daughters were born in Sasselberg, were educated. Uh, the elder two were educated uh, half in Sasselberg and half in Bloemfontein. And then uh, the youngest one was educated half in Sasselberg and half in Joburg because in 1993 I was transferred out of Sasselberg into the head office in Johannesburg. And so we moved back to Joburg in 93. But yeah, the kids had a great childhood. So uh, I don't yeah, see any kids in Joburg having the same kind of childhood that my three kids had. So I think it's a, it's a, the sad, the sad reality you mentioned, you know, estate living um, is, I guess it's a plastic, fake form of, of, of the neighborhoods we all grew up in. Uh, and the same with us. You know, we grew up on bicycles and, and the, when the streetlights came on, that was your cue to, to go home. And, um, you know, everything was, was, was fine and dandy. But, yeah, today it's, uh, it's a state and that's, that's within those electrified uh, fences. That's, that's the freedom, unfortunately. But, yeah, it's, um, it's a sad story. So. You went from a corporate to a startup, but but now I, I want to touch on the fact that uh, you I had went from a corporate back into a corporate in Johannesburg. Okay, so so the the, the JV was was another big company. So let let's quickly stand still there as far as the, look. The JV, the one partner, was a South African company called Centricin. And Jacques, I don't know if we could, can mention names, but it's too hard to tell you the story without mentioning these corporate names. Uh, it was a, 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 a public company listed on the JSC Centre Chem. They were 50% shareholders with a German company. But the way the JV was set up, my career path was in the South African company and not in the and not in the German company. The South African company had management responsibility for the business, um, and the German company basically had the technology responsibility. We implemented and used their technology to make uh, plastics, polyethylene and polypropylene. Um, when I was, and I was in that company, as I said, till 93, I was then moved out of that company into another Centrochem company. So I was promoted out of the way of the joint venture into another wholly owned Centrochem South African company. That happened in 93. So we moved back then from Sasselberg back to Joburg in 93. Uh, then what happened to me or what happened to us is in 98, uh, the latter part of 1998, Centrochem was bought out by an American company called Dow, the Dow Chemical Company. And um, 
How did they? How did Dow compare to the DuPonts of the world? Were, were they in this similar size companies? Well, at, that, at that stage, there was a fierce competition as to who was the bigger of the two, DuPont really? or Dow. And depending how you how you counted the numbers, you know, gave you the answer. Uh, the Dow people, of course, said their way of counting is correct, and they're the biggest chemical company in the world. And then DuPont guys would say, "But sorry, you know, we count this way, and we bigger than you." You know, so so who, who had they the were less both, They're both exceptionally large. So who had and the of course, less today they one company. Yeah, they one company today. They've merged um, oh, about ten years ago. Or so they merged, so it's now one big company. You still see the different names, but this, that it's a, there was a huge merger of these two. Anyway, in the, in the 98, they were still the Dow Chemical Company, and they came in to South Africa. You'll remember that in the Latin 1990s, there was this, there was this kind of view that South Africa was the doorway to Africa. Mm. So that if you wanted to move and do business in Africa, you were wise to come into South Africa. Now, Dow had been in South Africa prior to the troubles, as I call them, and they disinvested. And then they came back in 1995 as Dow Chemical. And then in 98, they bought Centrochem and swallowed up Centrochem into Dow Chemical. Uh, I ended up running running the place. We obviously re-engineered um, a lot of the Centrochem businesses. A lot of the businesses were sold. The Centrochem businesses were found not to fit too well into the Dow model uh, or business or business uh, businesses and a lot of the businesses were sold and I had that unhappy task of trying to sell businesses and to sell all my colleagues away. But I'm very proud that we managed to do that without losing one job. So that wow. was fantastic. So I was then sitting in Johannesburg running I was then chairman of Centrochem, which was then by that stage just really a shell. And I was the local manager of Dow South Africa. And then what happened in 2001, um, between 2001 and 2003, all these businesses started to get sold. And I, I was left with a business called Carbacam, which we had had one failed attempt to sell it. And my Dow boss then offered the business to us, to me and some partners. So we bought out some businesses that were part of the old Carbacam, which had been a division of Centricam. And Part of that grouping of companies is or was this thing called SLC. And you've spoken and you this thing I think was brought about by by Quentin van Neerden 
who's now running running SLC. So we bought up these old businesses and ran them for a long time. And we still own bits and pieces. There's three of us in the business. We still own bits and pieces of that business, but we sold off bits and pieces as well. And one part that we sold off as going concern was the so-called SLC business, synthetic latex company, which is run by Quinton and his uh, management team. So, I wanna, I so wanna... that's kind of what happened to me. I was I was in the chemical industry all my working life. It was an interesting time to be in the industry in South Africa, particularly a because of the changes in South Africa, the political changes in South Africa, which obviously had economic consequences. And I mean, you could have a whole podcast series just on that subject alone. But also in that same time frame, the global chemical industry uh, was changing very, very dramatically. It was globalizing. So a lot of Um, consolidation taking place. Yeah, and expansion and consolidation. So companies were going from being regional leaders, moving into the global, global sphere, and becoming global leaders. And you saw companies were very successful at that, like Dow, for example, like DuPont. Tijd vir a, het jy geweet in Setsel? Dow Chemicals is a US chemical corporation headquartered in Michigan and ranks among the world's three biggest chemical manufacturers. Dow produces plastics, chemicals, and agricultural products in around 160 countries. Dow has been dubbed the chemical company's chemical company since sales are to other chemical companies rather than directly to end users. In 2017, Dow merged with fellow chemical giant DuPont to form Dow DuPont. And the following year, the company's parent, Dow Inc., was separated into a public company via a corporate spin-off. Uh, but you also saw a lot of companies fail in this, perhaps one of the most famous failures was RCR, the the old parent of ANCI, uh, RCI, Imperial Chemical Industries, which had been a, a, a very steadfast European player based in the UK, but with business in the in Was Europe. it Harvey? Harvey something. He's a celebrity um, yeah, CEO. They, they just disappeared. You can't find them anymore. And a lot of the old names of the chemical industry just don't exist anymore. The interesting part in South Africa's the South Africa story is that because of the political history uh, which essentially ended up in us facing sanctions. But prior, but prior to even the sanctions period, the industry was so-called protected by the laws and, by the, uh, and tariff structures and import control structures that the South African government had put in place. On the one hand, you can well argue that these things are necessary for a new industry that's growing, 
remember prior to Cecil, there wasn't really much going on, you know. So, so prior to the 1950s, there wasn't really much of a South African industry. And, and so it grew from the 50s onwards and the government uh, had put in place import control for all the products that were made locally. So it meant that if you, if you, if you wanted to import a particular product, a chemical product that was then being manufactured in South Africa, you had to apply for permission to do so. And normally, 99% of the time, permission obviously wasn't granted. Mm. So that the local industry grew up behind these rather high protective barriers, and they were absolute barriers. It wasn't just a commercial barrier based on price or whatever. It was an actual barrier that you did not have permission to import these things, so-called import control. This had a couple of consequences. The one consequence was that you normally, inside this barrier, inside the country, there was very little competition. So you'd get one producer of a product. So there was no, there was very little internal competition. Christmas time. Which obviously wasn't good, you know, because it's only competition that, that, that enhances competitiveness and efficiency and so on. And of course, with import control, there was no competition from outside of the country. So you didn't have to worry whether you now the only producer of product X. Your customers did not have the authority to, to buy somebody else's product. They had to buy it from you virtually at any price. So the, <laughs> the industry was not efficient. That was the net result. The industry was small because it catered only for the South African needs. It was small in the sense that there were not more, there was very few instances of more than one producer of a single product, and it was inefficient and costly because there was no competition. Now, that was great if you were a manager in those days. Your customer phoned you up, and you told him what he was going to pay you. <laughs> and he will <laughs> like it. He will I like it. Remember, yeah, I can still remember. <laughs> you know, now I won't mention names, but I can remember attending board meetings and so on, where people would just say, but put the price up. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can. Because you can. <laughs> well, along came 1994, uh, and with it came the New South Africa, and with it came, a, I don't know what the right word is, the democratization of the economic landscape, uh, modernization of the tariff structures, import controls disappeared and were replaced with, um, with uh, tariffs. So you could import competitive product, but you had to pay some tariff, some import tariff. And these tariffs were over a period of, they started off as being quite high in terms of global view, 
in terms of the WTO, they were pretty high tariffs. But the country had a, com a commitment to reduce these tariffs down to WTO levels over a period of 10 years. And in many cases, the tariffs disappeared uh, totally. So some of the products that were produced locally then ended up after the 10-year period or so not to have any duty protection at all. So those businesses were then faced with global competition. So what had been happening outside of the country, there was this globalization of industry, there was this consolidation, as you say, companies were, were becoming bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of production volumes. So you had, for example, in the rubber industry here, or in the plastics industry, you had companies making maybe 100,000 tons of product. They were facing competition from these consolidated global entities that were making millions of tons of product. So the cost base, the, the South African competitor, the cost base was still not entirely competitive. And if you look at the industry today, and I mean, I've been retired for some time now, if you look at the industry today, you can still see uh, some of the effects of that. Some, some products are no longer produced in this country, uh, etc. Others are, are produced in a, in a very small scale on a niche basis, uh, that kind of thing. So the chemical industry today is, in my view, not what it was. And I think because of the globalization and because of the current situation, political and economic in this country, the chemical industry will struggle for quite a few years before it's going to become vibrant again. And companies like SLC will have a, will have a real battle to remain competitive uh, and, and to keep their heads above water. So I want to I want to touch on that because that that's uh, I want to ask you something uh, and 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 just to elaborate on 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 the the SLC comment. So, but I want to go one step back. Um, what what was the impact on talent, um, the talent pool in South Africa? Because my mind says sanctions, isolated. It's like when we we played our rugby, you know, and we went back international stage. We we were a joke uh, to 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 play at that level initially, and obviously we we you know we we came to the party in a big way. It feels like South Africa was was if I look at Danel, you know, we were flourishing as far as our talent and and development under uh, apartheid. But I'm, I'm I'm thinking that the war have something to do with that. And then, so how would you compare our talent base? pre uh, New South Africa uh, and post-New South Africa? Oh, that's a very interesting question, Jacques. Um, in the good old, bad old days then, when we were living inside this lager, these companies that produce products normally produce them by virtue of, of being granted or buying a license from one of these other companies external companies. So you wanted to make product X, 
so you, you scouted around the world and you saw who were the best producers and you would perhaps approach a couple and ask for a license to produce that product. In other words, use their technology to build a plant in South Africa. So while economically speaking, as I've said, ultimately this was not a good thing for the country, it was fantastic for people in the industry because people like myself got exposed to different technologies that would never have been in this country otherwise. I mean, as I say, I was perhaps even slightly more advantaged in that I was in a joint venture that had technology from a, from a, from a technology partner. So I was exposed not only locally in the business, but I spent a lot of time out of the country learning about technology, understanding it, uh, etc. So, and this happened to a lot of people in the industry. Even people who work for companies like Sasso were were largely exposed to overseas technologies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So while it was perhaps not good for the country not to have its own technology base, it was good for the people working in the industry to a large extent because we were exposed to it. That was like a fast track. It was, yeah, and you, you, got, Skills and you development. got to have shoulders with people in the external world, you know. Mm, mm. When in the new South Africa what happened, oh, and obviously these licenses that you bought from these international players were geographically limited, okay? So you would buy a license from a Dow or from an Exxon or from somebody to produce product A, but that license would say you may use our technology to produce product A, but you may only sell it in your geographical area. So only in South Africa. So the international players with, knew they couldn't operate in South Africa because there was these import barriers. So they were they were they would they would willingly grant you this license, but they would they would um, limit you geographically. In the new South Africa, because the the opportunities to export from the country also opened up. So the imports were coming in and exports were starting to leave the country. These international players didn't like it because they were competing against their own products now. So a lot of these licenses were curtailed in the new environment, the new economic environment in the chemical industry in South Africa. In a case in SLC, for example, SLC itself was a joint venture through Revertex in Durban, which was part of the big Synthema group in Europe. And the, t- the initial technologies in SLC were supplied through the vertex into SLC. In the new South Africa, that technology was frozen because the fear was you would export against the very guy whose product you were, you were producing. So it became quite a difficult issue economically 
But as far as talent was concerned, a lot of this technology then stopped coming to the country mm. or improvements to the technology stopped coming to the country. So, the, so the, the scientists and the technicians in the industries suddenly were kind of not part of the big world anymore. You know, conversely, you would have thought, well, in the old days living in the lager, you were not part of the world. But because of the nature of the chemical industry, you were because you were using outside technology. Suddenly, when the lager was broken down and we became part of the big world, the reverse happened. That's the technology started to be to be limited, cut off, not renewed, not improved, and so the the people in the industry actually suffered in my view. So, yeah, that 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 that's that that's so counterintuitive. I mean, it's a it's fascinating what you're saying, but again, I, it it makes so much sense with 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 these joint joint ventures now. The second part of my question is going back to your your comment about SLC and 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 uh, the challenge to stay competitive. Do you anticipate almost like uh, this whole thing coming full circle, whereby the the the, the technology? Um, I mean, in many ways, in South Africa, if we pull up our socks, we we, we technically still the gateway to Africa. Um, do you anticipate a scenario where South Africa will once again manage the show? And international technology will will you'll have these JVs who say, "Here's our product. You guys execute over there." What? How do you see the future as far as um, yeah, your I'm comment about being competitive or staying I'm competitive? Bit, I'm a little bit cynical in that regard, Jacques. I think the so-called gateway to Africa thing never really worked. Hmm? It never really worked. You don't have to be centered in South Africa to do business in Africa. Hmm. If you think about it, that was a rather silly assumption, you know. Um, unless, unless you're just lying because you want a nice life and head office in Cape Town, all right? <laughs> yeah, well, that, well, that too. So in my view, the gateway to Africa was a myth anyway or a fiction. It, it, it wasn't really necessary. A lot of companies actually did come and, and start and open offices here and do business from Africa, from South Africa. But if the truth be told, it's not an absolute requirement. Um, so that's the one thing. The other negative is, uh, in my view, is that because of this globalization of the industry that happened everywhere in the world, South Africa is really a negligible part of the global market. Mm. I mean, we are so small uh, in relation to the size of the production capabilities of these big companies now that we really don't actually have any weight in any argument or negotiation, in my view. So, yeah, it's, it's sad news. And I think what's happened to the talent is that the talent pool has recognized this. I talk under correction, but if you now go and count how many chemical engineering students there are, I'm not talking about Technicon students. I'm talking about the equivalent of the old days, people going to do BSCs in pure chemistry or chemical engineering, 
the, the numbers are way, way down because the industry is not that attractive anymore. And unless you're a huge player like a Cecil or maybe the oil refinery people, you are not very attractive to the young, the young student anymore or not as attractive as you perhaps were 40, 50 years ago. So I think the talent pool has got much smaller if I talk about my own industry. Uh, it's got much smaller. And I think that's very sad because I think the universities, all of them, uh, Wits, Cape Town, Durban, uh, Bloemfontein, Pretoria, they had fantastic chemistry departments and chemical engineering departments. Really fantastic. In the time I was at university, half of my lectures were given to me by guest lecturers from overseas university. Wow. Come to the varsity for a year, you know. Sure. I don't think that happens anymore, at least not in those, in those faculties. I, I, as I said, I'm a little bit cynical and a little bit negative. Um, I think joining the real world was not in the long term a very good thing for the chemical industry in South Africa. You know, the other argument is if you don't deserve to survive, you won't survive. <laughs> so, you know, maybe that's the that, harsh that's... truth of, of, the, of the modern world. Um, well, but I think that that's that, a, and that's appropriate, you know. Try, yeah, fit to survive for sure. So, if you look at a, a, a company like SLC, which in all, whichever way you measure it, it's a small company. So, what what if if you were, let's go back twenty years ago. You now you find yourself twenty twenty one, in COVID year. You're in charge of ASLC, a Centrochem modern version of it. What would be your advice? How would you go about uh, uh, making sure you're still around in 10 years' making time? Making sure you survive. Mm. I, think, I think what you have to do is you – and SLC are doing it, by the way. When, when we – when my partners – and I own that we started, we started to populate the business with young, highly qualified people. That was step one. And step two was to motivate them to be the best they could be because what they had to do was they had to start developing their own technologies. They could take the product base they had, but they had to find ways to manufacture these things themselves using their own technology, their own theories, they build their own plants. So if you go back 20 years, that's what should have been happening. And in the case of SLC, I think they have been somewhat successful. Um, they have a little R&D team, little in terms of the number of people, but they are highly efficient and highly effective people. Mm. And they have developed new products in the markets that SLC operates. They have 
develop new products from scratch that have really reven- revolutionized some of the applications. So SLC today, in certain parts of, it biz- of its business, can compete with the global majors even though they are relatively small. And they're doing this by being highly effective and highly innovative, using brain power to and, and raw intelligence to overcome these economic problems. And if I have to take my hat off to anybody, I take it off to, to Quinton and his team. They have been really good at doing this. And, 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 and agility, just being able to pivot. I think that's the, they, they're not an oil tanker, excuse the pun, you know, that yeah. uh, you could they just… They have the ability to be fast moving, mm. make quick… And the other thing is not being part of a corporate, <laughs> they can yeah. make quick decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, and, they can make, and they can change that decision tomorrow if they want to. Mm. Yeah, that's one thing of being in a corporate, as you say, it's like a tanker on the open seas. It's hard to change the direction, and then it's hard to correct that if you have to correct it as well. (laughs) Two two left turns. (laughs) They can make decisions quickly, and they can change their minds quickly. Mm. And uh, that that has stood them in in very good. I can remember when we still owned it, there was a lady. There was a lady who was heading the R and D. A young, a young lady heading the R&D, and we were branching out into some new products. And I said in one of the management meetings, oh, you know, there's a certain product. You know, it would be nice to be able to look at that, and but I don't think we'll ever be able to make it. She piped up and said, but we did it in the lab yesterday. <laughs> so that kind of, that kind of thing uh, will stand them in good stead. Mm-hmm. I think in the corporate world in South Africa, there will not be a place for the chemical industry, largely because of this. And I think you see it in the Sassels. Eh? I mean, Sassel had a major issue, or still have a major issue, mainly because of being slow to, to see problems, slow to react to problems, slow to change their strategies. Mm. Uh, yeah, so... So if I'm you gonna... ask me what will happen in South Africa, I think the little guys who are manned with the right people, who are mm-hmm. managed in the right way, such that they are fleet of foot, they will be able to survive and they'll be able to hold employment uh, and they'll be able to create some wealth. Mm. And I mean, and that, 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 that's... that's... Unfortunately, the chemical industry is not a large creator of jobs. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's not a labor-intensive business. In fact, the global industry has, has moved away so that, you know, in the old days, you'd be producing 100,000 tons of a product, say, with 50 people in a plant. You must probably be producing a million tons now with 10 people in a plant, you know. The technologies have advanced so that it's it's definitely not a not a job creation kind of industry, which is most probably why it will not ever really attract much interest uh, with government and government bodies. So, so I guess that that's not a that's not a 
bad thing uh, in the sense that uh, if you can fly under the radar and just get on with it, uh, I, I, I think it's, it's typical, I think, in the SME environment. It depends now, obviously, if you're SME dealing with mines. I've got a customer of mine. I mean, these guys have to jump through 27 hoops every time because they're dealing with an Anglo-American um, so all these labor-intensive of, of, of industries, if you that supply chain is, is incredibly, um, I guess, problematic in a way. All the red tape and everything that goes with it. Uh, the, the chemical industry reminds me actually of the agricultural in South Africa, where the guys again, the, the, it's that balance between obviously they don't want to. Um, um, well, let's put it this way: the more problematic labor becomes, the you know, it's just going to tractor is going to replace it. The, the, the tractor that drives itself. It's as simple as that. But um, at least that we can see in the results that it, it works somehow uh, for for companies and industries to, just to get on with it, employ the best people, and 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 deliver excellent products and 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 grow from there and create jobs, which which is the main objective here. Yeah, the the problem, of course, is because it's it's not labor intensive, but it's capital intensive. So to build a new plant, for example. Is, is an expensive business. And that's really where the challenge will come for these smaller companies like SLC. You know, the time comes to replace a plant because it's reached its, its end of life. Uh, the capital intensity of the business, of the, of the nature of the business is such that it could be quite difficult to do that. So... So I want to – I just want to give the, the listeners this uh, idea of size, right? So uh, uh, going back to Centrichem, what are we talking annual turnover-wise? Is that something you can share? Oh, we're talking – I forget the numbers. Uh, billions of rands. How many, okay. how many staff? So I just want to give uh, people an idea of the size of these companies. Well, Centrochem in its heyday had five divisions, and I forget how many people we were, but we were we were we were hundreds of people, you know, if not a, not a couple of thousand, spread over five or six divisions, however many we had. Um, turnover, well, I can I can tell you now that in 1998, uh, Dow paid five billion rand. For the, for the outstanding shares. Now, of course, a rand is a lot more in those days. <laughs> yeah, that's what I say. That was almost... rand, and you escalate it to a twenty twenty one rand. I think you're going to get five billion. Is most probably fifty billion. I don't know, something like that today. Sure. Um, so that was the kind of size of the business. You know, the capital value of the business, doing billions of rands of turnover. Yeah, what, I, what's I, don't a, have a feeling, I don't have a feeling for the size now. But if you're looking at an SLC, you're then looking at one order of magnitude less. I mean, they're, they're much smaller. Hmm. Um, I don't know, Quinton's maybe turning 100 million now. I'm not sure, but that's kind of the size of the business. So he's an order of magnitude smaller. Um, but as we said, th- that comes with some advantages. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's not a. It's now. It's a medium-sized company that that that's that's agile. So let's. Uh, there's three questions basically. So you know, looking back, what what was the most challenging parts of 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 the business? 
uh, and and obviously in in, in um, with that, uh, what are the most important business lessons you've you've uh, learned and 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 as I always say, business lessons is what what not to do. So what challenging? What were the most challenging bits of the business and what not to do? Yeah, what were the challenges? I think particularly this whole change of the nature of the business and the opening up of South Africa to the real world was a huge challenge. Uh, not only to me, but to everybody in leadership positions in the industry. And we all went through it uh, with more or less the same degree of success. So that was a huge challenge. But buried in that challenges were lots of challenges. Like, how do you now make your make your business competitive? Uh, which was really, I think, the overarching challenge. And I I soon came to learn, Jacques, and I still believe it fervently today. And, you know, I still regularly have coffee with Quinton because he he likes to chew the cud with me a bit. And I, I impress on him at every coffee session. The answer to all your issues will be found in and by your people. To me, the biggest lesson I learned over my 40-odd years or whatever was I was in an industry was, boy, oh boy, you have to learn to trust the people you appoint. Mm -hmm. And you can say that quickly, and it doesn't sound such a big issue, but boy, it's a big issue. (laughs) (laughs) And the only way you're going to be successful is if your people are successful. So as a leader in, in, in any industry, I think you have to invest the time, the effort, the resources to keep your people up to date, to make them competitive so that your business will be competitive. You know, I can open a chemistry handbook and I can find out how to make anything I want, you know, but I can't necessarily get the right people to do it effectively, efficiently, and, you know. So really, the art, and I say art advisedly, the art of managing people Mm. is something that every industry has, every industry leader has to to master. So two two questions regarding uh, your comment, Duncan. So number one, uh, HR function today versus back in your day, it, it, it feels to me like HR's, uh, uh, um, the best companies in the world, HR department is heavily integrated, so they're 100% aligned with what management or what the company's purpose and vision is versus, hey, just send a bunch of CVs, let's eliminate those that don't have a degree and off we go. So HR for me has is, is, is become... Uh, uh, um, inefficient, I think. Uh, that's my, you know, South Africa more so because um, it's not 100% based on merit, unfortunately, as, as we know what the realities are. So, so that's the first question is how does HR, uh, what was HR like back in the day and, and, and your early days versus the, the latter years before you retired? And the second question is um, 
who was your go-to? You, you mentioned the art of, of management. I, I love it because it, it's, it's, it's not an exact science. What, what was, where did you develop your painting skills, so to speak? How, what, any tips that, that you might have and advice? Yeah, as far as the HR departments are concerned, I think I've seen it kind of go full circle, Jacques. When I started out in the industry as a young graduate, the HR departments, I think, were exactly as you mentioned them. They were old, stodgy departments. They were there to look after the people. Your manager didn't really worry. If there was an issue, he sent you off to the HR department to solve it, you know, and he kind of washed his hands of it and so on. That changed. And in my particular case, I, I drove it that way, is that the HR manager was, in fact, the line manager. The guys who reported to me are my responsibility, even in terms of traditional HR. And the HR department became an asset and a tool to all the line managers to make them better HR managers. Got it. So so that's the, a support. It's emphasis, a purely support function for line management. Yeah. yeah. So the emphasis moved from HR being on the side and being the the go-to for HR issues to become the support for the line manager who must then take and should then take responsibility for all the facets of his people's uh, corporate health. Then along came the new South Africa. Along came a lot of new requirements, new rules. You, you know, we don't have to go into all of them. But that has kind of forced that the HR department has taken back a lot of that kind of control because it's not possible for each line manager to now operate individually with all these kind of rules and regulations. There's the, this, there's the employment equity. It just became a regulation nightmare, and the regulation nightmare has given power back to the HR manager in a large degree. And in the bad sense of the word. In the bad sense of the word. I still say that it's the HR manager's responsibility to look after the corporate health of his people, but it has regressed somewhat in this new environment. Mm -hmm. There's so many reports have to be sent to so many government departments. The HR, the, the line managers just cannot do it all. So just by the very nature of the, of the beast now, it's moving a little bit back to what it was in the in the past, but I still say that people are the issue, and people are the way to success or failure. If you don't manage to to look after people properly, you will. I don't believe you will be successful in whatever business you are: making chemicals, making shoes, making tables, making whatever. It's the people who are doing it, and. They they have to be competent. They have to be efficient. They have to be happy. They have to be trusted, and they have to feel trusted. 
You know, you can't, you can't, excuse the word, you can't bullshit trust. You know, you will know whether I trust you or not and vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> you know, me saying to you, Jock, I trust you. <laughs> you know, that doesn't help. No. So, so the people must feel trusted. And once that happens, they will grant the line manager the right to be the line manager and to be the boss, so to speak. So it's a two-way street. It goes about authority and trust. And you have to, you have to learn to do this properly. That's, and that's look, you can't be 100% advice. successful with everybody. It is also a fact that there is such a thing as personal chemistry. <clears throat> and unfortunately, if I, my personal chemistry clashes with your job, we're going to have difficulty working together. And we're going to definitely have difficulty working if it's a one, if one of us is above the other in some hierarchy. Mm. So, yeah, there will be these cases, but that's, that's human nature. That you can't, you can't avoid that kind of thing. But in essence, it's all about trust and it's about granting the authority to manage. So, and that's the only way you're going to get it right, in my belief. So who was your second last question, Duncan? Um, who was your mentor? Obviously, I know Quentin. He speaks highly of you. Um, it's it's always a privilege to to sit with with uh, with uh, uh, you know a, a, a legend and an expert in industry that that's been around. As I always say, it's been around your block twice. Who was your go to? Where did you? How did you develop? Obviously, you mentioned the the international exposure. Uh, traveling uh, uh, to other countries and, and spending time with those teams. Obviously, that played a huge role. But who was that person you had that, some, let's say, that coffee with? Regularly? I was very lucky, actually, to have a boss by the name of Glenn Carter. He has subsequently passed on me uh, quite some time ago. But he was my direct boss for a couple of years while I was in this joint venture. And for whatever reason, he, he took a specific role in mentoring me. Um, he went out of his way to mentor me. He later on, when I was running this other division, when I was sent back to Joburg, and I was running it as MD of that division. He was my chairman, chairman of my divisional board. Uh, he was one of the senior executives of Centricim. And if, if I were to find one person within the organizations that I've been in, then definitely uh, the one guy called, called Glenn Carter. And I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to him. Uh, externally, outside of the organizations, I think there were, there were a couple of guys. Uh, one in, this, in the German joint venture, venture company, I became pretty close to, to one particular guy. The way the, way the, the the joint venture partner set up his his external business with companies like us. They had what they call a, depart, a coordination department, 
which had a couple of very experienced, very well qualified people, uh, PhDs in chemistry and chemical engineering with these guys. And the guy who was looking after our company from a technology point of view was a guy called Siegfried, Dr. Siegfried Gerbica. And I still, he is now deep into his 90s. I still communicate with him. He still sends me a Christmas message every year. But he has also, in a large part, helped to internationalize me in a way. Because one of the other consequences of living in this lager is we didn't have a lot of international shoulder rubbing with people. But he, he helped me tremendously to move around his organization and to kind of broaden my mental horizons about relationships with other people outside the organizations in which I was employed. And uh, fantastic. So though he definitely, and then I used a consultant at one stage just before the country was about to be democratized, um, I ran a program, because in this joint venture company, I ran a program to help bring everybody on board. Um, and maybe some of this you can't repeat. You know, living in Sasselberg, you, remember, you may remember that Sasselberg was only was was the only constituency ever to be represented by the HNP. Tijd voor a het jy geweet in Setsel? De herstigte nationale partij, commonly abbreviated as the HNP, was established as a far-right splinter group of the National Party in 1969. Originally formed by Albert Herzog, son of former PM General J.B.M. Herzog, the party started to make their voice heard when the animated Jaap Marais took over as leader during the late 1970s. The HMP never managed to gain seats in Parliament in a general election, though merely remaining the chief voice of the far right. In 1985, however, HMP General Secretary Louis Stoffberg defied the odds for once by winning the Sasselberg by-election. That's interesting. Yeah, in Parliament. So, um, <laughs> to say that the new South Africa was awaited with much glee in Sasselberg would have been a huge over-exaggeration. And I recognized that this would become an issue in the workplace. Um, it's the first thing I recognized. The second thing I recognized was, you know, I could do nothing about it on a global sense. I couldn't stand up in Pretoria and shout the odds or, you know, but I could and I did have influence inside the fences of my factory. You know? So we launched a program to help people into the new South Africa. Not entirely political, but obviously there was obviously a political undertone. Uh, but largely we focused on how do you run a business, what are the important things in a business, what are the roles in the business, and so on. And each and every person 
from myself as the MD all the way down to the guy who swept the floors in the warehouse. We took these people away off-site for a week and we worked them through this program of acclimatization. And I used a particular consultant to help me design and run these things, um, Skaterman Associates. You may remember um, there was a guy in the in the broadcasting world called Jerry Skaterman. Mm. I don't know if you remember the name. This goes back a long time. This goes back to 1991 or two. Well, his brother has a consulting business, uh, a relationship consulting business. Uh, and I used his brother's names, Itzko Skatema. And uh, he became a mentor in a sense of this, how do you help people? And he, he also taught me a lot about this issue of trust and management and so on. Uh, so, yeah, I'd say there were three people in my life, one, one internal, two kind of semi, a second guy kind of semi-internal in that he was in the JV partner, and then third and the external guy. Mm. And they kind of, they did. They, they, they forged really the limits around which, in, in which I worked from during my whole career now. Duncan, so, yeah, difficult to explain, but that's the. It's a, I think it's the, the the message I get again. It's 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 you know we we it's the human factor. I mean, we live in an age. I'm just thinking, you know, we live in an age as entrepreneurs, management that we can we can listen to a podcast, I believe, or, or YouTube for that matter. Free, incredible, uh, international uh, advice, uh, wisdom. Uh, lessons, but that mentorship, that face-to-face -face element, and and sitting at a, at, as I said, someone that's been around your block is is invaluable. And I think you've just emphasized uh, that, um, yeah. And and again, it's you know finding that that states, all the statesmen, so to speak, and and, and sitting at their feet is 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 very important. Uh, uh, I believe that's why, as well, Jock. You know, people are saying now, Oh, everybody's working from home, office blocks will be empty, nobody's going to go back to work. I don't believe that. Mm. I'm, I'm sure we won't, it won't go back to the old normal, but human beings have to be with human beings. Mm. And yes, I can see you, I can talk to you, but I'm not with you. Mm. And it's different, it, this would be different we were sitting across a desk from each other. We would have the same conversation, but it would somehow be different. Yes, absolutely. And I think the human being, human beings require, they, they need that. So I, I don't think office blocks are going to stand empty. I think people are going to go back to the office. Companies are going to require people to come back. And I, I, I'm, I believe a large majority of the employees will want to go back. They miss, they miss the, the daily interaction. I mean, even when I was running down South Africa in a fancy head office here in Joburg, you know, the first thing I did was I'd walk through the corridors of the building and see the people, talk to them, you know, because that's, that's what human beings do. And that's what I believe human beings need.
Sitting behind a computer screen is all fancy and it's very nice and that, but ultimately that's not what you what you want and what you need. But I don't think office blocks are going to run. They may be not as densely populated because I'm sure there will there will be some form of longevity in working from home. But it'll most probably be you work from home three days a week and you come in two days a week or something like that. Mm. But people will come together because they want to come together. They need to come together. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. It's all about people. It's all about yeah. people. Absolutely. Last question. It's a, it's a trick question. I just, I just uh, you, you talked about the, the, the obviously the voters' <laughs> philosophy, uh, political philosophy. Why, why, why Sasselberg? Do you know why Sassel was built in Sasselberg? Yeah, Sassel requires coal and water, and in that Sasselberg area. There's a lot of coal, was a lot of coal, and of course was right on the river. So that's that's in a very long story short. I just want to say one that's a one-dimensional <laughs> answer. Yeah, that's that's why Cecil was built where it was. Okay. Uh, and it helps it's a it's it's a beautiful the beautiful Val River next to it. Duncan, thank you so much for your time. Um I can I can I mean, there's so many other questions, but uh, I'm conscious of the time. Um, thank you so much for sharing this uh, invaluable you. story. It's, it's fascinating, um, amazing advice. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, John. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review and follow us on social media at Biz. B-I-Z, crush.